Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. As you can see at the bottom, I don't know why I announce it every day, I just read it on the screen. It's good to have you with us here today for our Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It is Saturday, March 27th, 2021. And on Saturdays, we like to consider um, some texts that perhaps will help us prepare uh, for tomorrow. Uh, today, what we're actually going to do, we've already studied the Gospel text we'll hear uh, well, at least the processional gospel text tomorrow. And I can't, or I really would rather not read the whole gospel according to St. Matthew for you today, which we'll hear tomorrow responsively. We'll pray it, to, we'll actually speak it together. Um, so I'd actually uh, like to read from, to you from the Formula of Concord on the person and work of Christ. I think that's really fitting or appropriate for us for our meditation today, uh, both for you as you prepare to hear God's word in the coming week, this holy week, um, but also as I prepare to preach to you from God's word. To again, keep that in mind. Who is, the, who is Christ and what has he done? So we'll do that today. And yes, uh, Pretty Music um, completed the editing of the first drafts anyway of the new choral music for Concordia Publishing House, which I recorded um, on two sessions over the last month or so. And uh, it had to be in oh, by the end of next week. But next week is a little busy, so I made sure I had to get it done this week. <laughs> Yes, it's a big project every year, but also beautiful music and a wonderful way for both me and uh, also for you who allow me to do such work to support the church at large. So I really do enjoy doing that. Good. We begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our memory verse this week, one more time, we say it together. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Luke 11, verse 28. Our psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth shall be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at, my, at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Um, now you know verse 4 we've considered actively in our Wednesday evening Bible study, since it's one of, I think, two theme verses, the other is Psalm 2, uh, it, for the epistle to the uh, to the Hebrews, right? The, the writer to the Hebrews uses verse 4 uh, for his exposition pretty much for most of the book, all right? So you know that quite well. I thought I'd mention just briefly, though, verse 1, which maybe is a little bit um, opaque to you. The Lord says to my Lord, so it's the Father speaking to the Son, you sit at my right hand, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, what's that all about? Um, this is a uh, um, ancient uh, Eastern practice, so it's not so much in the Western world, but certainly in the Eastern world, um, 
that the the one that you subject yourself to, you would go face plant. All right, we call that proskuneo in Greek. That's to uh, a lot of the times when people worship Jesus, they're all the way face to the ground. And if the king accepted you, or if you were under his, I shouldn't say accepted you, if he was under, or if you were under his uh, dominion, he would put his foot on your neck. Literally put his foot on your neck, right? Um, now, with Jesus, this is even more, I think, beautiful. Because um, not only does he put his enemies under his feet, um, but he actually crushes the enemy, right? The devil crushes the devil's head with his heel. All right, so it's connected to that as well. Um, you'll note also maybe another background to this that you hadn't caught before is in the golden calf incident. That's the justification that Aaron uses for the construction of the golden calf. He calls it the Lord's footstool, right? Um, but why is that a scandal? Calling the calf the footstool, right? Because that's Jesus's job, not the calf's job, right? So he has, um, he has supplanted the Son of God in his redeeming work with this calf that one would worship, right? So it's idolatry. All right, very good. The uh, epistle for tomorrow, which will also be what we'll consider here with our catechetical reading, is from Philippians chapter 2. And pay attention in special, especially to verse 7 here. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. All right, we'll come back to that in a minute. And then you'll hear for your procession tomorrow, uh, before we sing all glory, laud, and honor, the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done the sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Such an ironic statement at the end. Uh, if you'd like some catechesis on this text, go back and watch Tuesday. Uh, what date was Tuesday? Tuesday, uh, March 23rd, uh, the Congregation of Prayer for Tuesday, I believe, uh, is when we consider this text. Uh, but today, yes, it was Tuesday, uh, we will, in specific, consider who is Jesus and what is this about him taking on the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men, making himself of no reputation, all right. Um, so, like I said, to consider the person and work of Christ, I think it is helpful for us 
to go to the formula of Concord. I'm going to read from the Solid Declaration, which is the longer form. And uh, there's a shorter version called the Epitome. That's what an Epitome is. Uh, but we're going to look at the longer form. And the reason for that is this was written in response to controversy amongst the evangelicals, amongst the Lutherans, those who um, in Wittenberg and elsewhere. And uh, Lutherans have no lack of controversy, of course, as all Christians do, as uh, the spirit wages war against the flesh. All right, so a controversy, this is Article 8, by the way, a controversy has arisen among theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning the person of Christ. It did not at first begin among them, however, but proceeded originally from the sacramentarians, all right, so those who are say that Christ wasn't uh, fully bodily present in the Lord's Supper. I don't know how you could be of the Augsburg Confession and not believe that, but there were those. They were called the sacramentarians. For when Dr. Luther maintained with solid arguments the true essential presence of the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper, on the basis of the words of institution, the Zwinglians countered by saying that the body of Christ could not be a true and genuine human body if it were present at the same time in heaven and in the Holy Supper on earth, since such majesty belongs to God alone and the body of Christ is incapable of it. All right, so that's the Zwinglian argument. That's from Ulrich Zwingli, a Swiss reformer. Dr. Luther contradicted and mightily refuted this as his doctrinal and polemical writings concerning the Holy Supper, to which we herewith publicly profess our adherence, clearly demonstrate. All right, so we're going to demonstrate that here in a minute. Or no, it has been demonstrated before. Um, note that Luther, as a pastor of the church, wrote doctrinal, so here's what the Bible teaches, and polemical writings, um, some of which are quite famous because they're not terribly great, <laughs> uh, but many are, are quite famous because uh, they're phenomenal. So in writing against um, false teaching, he confesses the truth. That's another way to confess the truth, is in opposition to error. Right? So um, lest anyone say that pastors um, ought to keep their mouth silent in regards to errors, there you go. Uh, it's just in the tradition of the church since the beginning, and Luther was just following in that train. But after Luther's death, a few theologians of the Augsburg Confession, not quite ready to commit themselves publicly and explicitly to the sacramentarians in the doctrine of the Supper of the Lord, did operate with and use the same arguments about the person of Christ, with which the sacramentarians ventured to eliminate from his supper the true essential presence of the body and blood of Christ. That he's truly there, and essentially, right? It is actually his body and blood. That is, they said that nothing is to be attributed to the human nature in the person of Christ that transcends or contravenes its natural essential properties. And they went so far as to load down Dr. Luther's teaching as well as those of those who follow it as being in harmony with the word of God with accusations of almost all the monstrous old heresies. All right. So they, they accuse Luther and the followers of Luther of being uh, Marcionite, Semisotines, Sabellians, Arians, Nestorians, Eutychians, Monothelites, and Flacians. Oh, well, the, it would be the Flacians that follow all those things. Those are the sacramentarians. All right, so now you know the controversy that's going to give us cause or purpose in the, in the confession uh, for speaking positively about who Jesus is and what he has done. All right, in order to explain this controversy in a Christian way, according to the word of God, in accordance with our plain Christian creed, and to settle it definitively by God's grace, our unanimous teaching, belief, and confession are as follows. All right, and then they're going to give, I'm just going to count here, um, nine primary statements 
of faith, all right, confessional statements. I'm not going to read them all because um, I'd like to get to the part that uses Philippians chapter 2. It's a long article. All right, so one, we believe, teach, and confess that although the Son of God is a separate, distinct, and complete divine person, and therefore has been from all eternity, true, essential, and perfect God with the Father and the Holy Spirit, yet, when the time had fully come, he took the human nature into the unity of his person, not in such a manner that there are now two persons or two Christs, but in such a way that Christ Jesus is henceforth in one person, simultaneously true, eternal God, born of the Father from eternity, and also true man born of the virgin, most blessed Virgin Mary, as it is written, of their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Romans 9, 5. Or you might also hear Luther's own explanation in the small catechism. So uh, Luther's students uh, keep repeating the catechism, maybe in their own words, but still there. Of course, that's just the um, confession of both uh, Nicaea and um, the Council of Constantinople as well. We believe, teach, and confess that henceforth, and in this single, undivided person, there are two distinct natures, the divine, which is from all eternity, and the human, which was assumed in time into the unity of the person of the Son of God. These two natures in the person of Christ will henceforth never be separated, blended with each other, or the one changed into the other. But in the person of Christ, each remains in its nature and essence through all eternity. We therefore, or furthermore, believe, teach, and confess that in their nature and essence, the two natures referred to, uh, referred to remain unmingled and unabolished, so that the, each retains its natural properties and throughout all eternity does not lay them aside, nor do the essential properties of one nature ever become the essential properties of another. So Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time, not to be mingled, not to be transformed. Okay, One is not overcome, the other is not destroyed, etc. Just trying to be faithful to the scriptures here. We also believe, teach, and confess that to be almighty, to be eternal, to be infinite, and to be everywhere at the same time naturally, that is according to the property of the nature and of its natural essence, to be intrinsically present, um, that's a technical expression uh, from the German and the Latin, uh, but anyway, and to know everything are essential properties of the divine nature, which throughout eternity will never become the essential properties of the human nature, right? So Jesus is everywhere at once. Not according to his humanity, but according to his divinity, simply put. Or his, inf his infinite character or his eternal nature is, is according to the divinity, not according to the humanity. But they're both his. Okay. On the other hand, to be a corporeal being or a creature, to be flesh and blood, to be finite and circumscribed, that's to be in one place at a time, to suffer and die, to ascend and descend, to move from one place to another, to suffer hunger, thirst, frost, heat, and similar things, are properties of the human nature, which never become the properties of the divine nature. All right. So, according to his humanity, um, he knows he suffers everything in the same way that we do, yet without sin, of course. Right? He dies. Jesus dies. According to his human nature, of course. We also believe, teach, and confess that after the incarnation, neither nature in Christ henceforth subsists for itself, so as to be or to constitute a distinct person. So you can't separate the divine and the human at the incarnation, they're forever joined, right? So even on the last day when Jesus comes to raise the dead, we will look on him whom we have pierced, right? We'll see the wounds in his hand, for example. Right? Those are not, um, those, are, those remain into eternity. But that the two natures are united in such a way that they constitute a single person in which there are and subsist at the same time both the divine and the assumed human nature, 
so that after the incarnation, not only his divine nature, but also his assumed human nature belonged to the total person of Christ, and that without his humanity, no less than without his deity, the person of Christ or the Son of God, who has assumed flesh and has become man, is not complete. All right, so we cannot know Jesus apart from both his human and divine natures together. They're inseparable, but distinct. <laughs> right? This is much like how we talk about uh, our two natures, that we are both uh, 100% sinful, according to the flesh, and yet by faith in the Son of God, by the working of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the dwelling of the Spirit, Christ's Spirit in us, we are at the same time 100% saint of God. They're distinguished, but they're not separable until the resurrection, when our flesh is restored. All right. Um, anyway, so therefore Christ is not two distinct persons, but one single person, in spite of the fact that two distinct natures, each with its natural essence and properties, are found unblended in him. We therefore believe, teach, and confess that the assumed human nature in Christ not only possesses, this is the key here, so pay attention, not only possesses and retains its natural essential properties, but that in addition thereto, through the personal union with the deity and afterward through the exaltation or glorification, it, meaning the human nature, has been elevated to the right hand of majesty, power, and might over every name that is named not only in this age, but in the age that is to come. Where does that sound like? That sounds like Ephesians 1 verse 21. Okay. But Christ did not receive this majesty to which he was exalted according to his humanity only after his resurrection from the dead and his ascension, but when he was conceived in his mother's womb and became man, and when the divine and human nature were personally united. Right? So God was born, fully God, at his birth. And um, that's part of, belongs to his exaltation. But this personal union is not to be understood, as some have incorrectly explained it, as if both natures, the divine and the human, are united with each other like two boards glued together, so that indeed, in truth, the two natures allegedly have no communion at all with each other. All right, so now that's, so we had nine points, and that ninth point is really then the source of the controversy, is can the humanity of Jesus express the divinity of Jesus, and vice versa? Is there a communication of the attributes of the divinity to the humanity of Jesus? Meaning, can Jesus' body be present everywhere at once? Now, that's not an essential nature of humanity. None of us can be in more than one place at once. And yet, because Jesus is both true God and true man, by communication, the communication, by the way, is a technical term. I, should, I think they define it later on, but it's communion. So it's like the word communion that we use. So it's the communion of the divine and human nature of Jesus, meaning they share each other. We see this in Jesus' own ministry. He walks on water. <laughs> what man can do that? Only the man who also ha is fully divine, right? And the divinity then is, is uh, transferred to the humanity. Um, or command the sea, for example, also in, in a similar reading, um, or to multiply the, the bread and the fishes, right? This is Jesus in his, in his full, fully human flesh and blood doing what only God can do. And it's through that communication of attributes so that his human voice is the divine eternal logos, the word that has been spoken and that made all things is also the word that comes from the man, Jesus, right? Now this all sounds very heady um, and otherworldly even. Well, of course it is because we're speaking of the things of God as he's revealed them in God's word. Um, but it actually matters significantly as we go into Holy Week, which is again, why I wanted to read this in particular, because um, there are those who say, especially, I don't know, National Geographic, or you know, you'll, you'll see it in probably some mainstream press this week, where they'll talk about how 
well, you know, there's a you know, there's another new book. I don't know the gospel according to who knows who, right? Judas gospel according to Judas. We'll just make one up, or maybe that's a real one. Who even knows? Um, and it says that actually Jesus fainted on the cross or something, that he didn't actually die, right? Because God can't die. That's usually the argument as that would go. I was like, mm, no, actually, because Jesus is fully God and fully man, then God died. The death of man was also the death of God. Like, well, how can that be? How can God die? I don't know. He did. <laughs> and uh, this is why it's also important to note how the apostles are very careful to say that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Why? Because Jesus was dead. <laughs> yes. Um, now we're getting to some metaphysical. Um, really, yeah. Sounds like uh, like we're going off to outer space. All right. Now, um, I'm going to skip ahead about 20 paragraphs where we talk about the conflict and a bunch of scripture. But um, where this text from Ephesians, which is, or not Ephesians, Philippians, Philippians 2, is used, um, or at least it's the context uh, or the background to further explain these two doctrines. So here we go. This is paragraph 35. It is highly important that this doctrine of the exchange of properties, all right, or attributes if you prefer, the communicatio idiomatum is the uh, the Latin, which I was supposed to learn in seminary, but I can never remember. There's three three of them: idiomaticum, or idi- yeah, idiomaticum, apostolicum, and forget the third Latin one. Anyway, the this exchange of properties between the two natures be treated and explained with due discrimination. Because the statements that we make about the person of Christ, its natures, and their properties are not at all the same kind and mode. And if one talks about them without due discrimination or distinction, the doctrine becomes tangled up and, and the simple reader is easily misled. All right, so this is really important for theologians. It's important. It, it's really the important work of the Lutheran Confessions as a whole, specifically here in the Formula of Concord, is not to uh, confuse you with heady talk, but simply to drive you down to confess the scriptures and the scriptures alone, right? And the reason for that, of course, is that anytime you mix um, philosophy into the scriptures, um, you run the risk of actually destroying the scriptures themselves and the truth that they give, all right? So we don't want to get tangled up. We just we want to make this easy for you to understand. It took them 36 paragraphs to get there, but, you know, it's a different age. Okay. For the sake of a better and simpler presentation, it can be comprehended under three main points. So instead of nine things and then a whole controversy, three main points. Ready? All right. And this, again, is based um, largely on um, the, dis- the three genera, the three distinctions. So there's the idiomaticum, the myasticum, that's the other one, and the apostolomaticum, <laughs> which will come later. Right? And these, those are the three ways of talking about um, the communication of Jesus' divinity and humanity, right? And you're going to see this play out as you hear the readings this coming week. In the first place, since in Christ two distinct natures are and remained unchanged and unblended in their natural essence and properties, and since both natures constitute only one person, therefore any property, though it belongs only to one of the natures, is ascribed not only to the respective nature as something separate, but to the entire person who is simultaneously God and man, whether he is called God or whether he is called man. All right? So anything that belongs to the divinity is also available to the humanity and vice versa. 
because Jesus is not two separate persons. God, you know, God taking up residence in flesh, you know, becoming uh, like, um, I don't know, the, the, the body being kind of the zombie body and God inside of the body or something like that. No, fully man, fully God, same time. But in this mode of speaking, uh, it does not follow that whatever is ascribed to the person is simultaneously the property of both natures. So just because um, the man Jesus can do God things doesn't mean um, that the man Jesus has godly, um, godly. Uh, what do we say? He, they use the word properties here, right? No, he's still just fully a man, right? So he sleeps, right? He hungers, he thirsts, all the things. Could he overcome those according to his divinity? Sure, but he is tr- fully man. That's, the scriptures are careful to show us that. On the contrary, it is distinctly explained according to which nature the property in question is being ascribed to the person. For example, the son was descended from David according to the flesh, Romans 1.3. Christ was put to death in the flesh and suffered for us in the flesh, 1 Peter 3. All right? But since secret as well as open sacramentarians hide their pernicious error under the words of the formula, etc., etc., etc. Okay, we don't need to talk about that. And then there's aliosis, which we don't want to talk about. That's a whole other thing. And then there is my favorite um, statement from Luther. <laughs> oh, Luther is so good. <laughs> if the old witch, Dame Reason, the grandmother of the Aliosis, would say that the deity surely cannot suffer and die, then you must answer and say, that is true, but since the divinity and humanity are one person in Christ, the scriptures ascribe to the deity because of this personal union all that happens to the humanity and vice versa. All right? And this is likewise within the bounds of truth. So here we go. This is for next week. Ready? This is what I was working towards. <laughs> I had to give you all the background. This is within the bounds of truth. For you must say that the person pointing to Christ suffers and dies. But this person is truly God, and therefore it is also correct to say the Son of God suffers. Although, so to speak, the one part, namely the deity, does not suffer, nevertheless the person who is true God suffers in the other part, namely in the humanity. For the Son of God truly is crucified for us. That is, the, this person who is God, for that is what he is, this person, I say, is crucified according to the humanity. Right? But God dies because he is the Son of God. Right? So don't, don't, you don't have to get too hung up on it, um, but it actually becomes an important um, question because if God did not die, then, Je- and if Jesus, then that means Jesus isn't the Son of God. Right? Um, there's another point I was going to make here. Oh, uh, the confession about St. Mary. This is also the, another way that this error creeps into the church is when people say, well, uh, Mary only gave birth to the man Jesus, not to God. And it's like, no, she is properly called the mother of God. She gave birth to the Son of God. Well, but she only gave birth to a baby boy. Yeah, well, she gave birth to a baby boy who was inseparably, inseparably joined to the divinity, the son of the eternal. He is the eternal son of God. So God was born. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose it's heady stuff. I don't see any comments from you, so I'm assuming you're just like, okay, pastor, just keep talking about it. Um, but what, where this really comes down, um, you know, the whole nature of this argument, where this comes down to be a challenge for us, is actually the presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Remember, that's the source of the, con- of the conflict. Um, and Luther does this himself in his confession concerning um, the councils in the church, right? Where he says, we Christians must know that unless God is in the balance and throws in weight as a counterbalance, we shall sink to the bottom with our scale. 
I mean, I mean that, I mean that this way. If it is not true that God died for us, but only a man died, we are lost. But if God's death and God dead lie in the opposite scale, then his side goes down and we go upward like a light and empty pan. (laughs) Of course, he can also go up again or jump out of his pan, but he could never have sat in the pan unless he had become a man like us, so that it could be said, God dead, God's passion, God's blood, God's death. According to his nature, God cannot die. But since God and man are united in one person, it is correct to talk about God's death. When that man dies, who is the one thing and or one person with God. All right, so we can properly call it, say God suffered, God died. All right, and then there's the, uh, the, uh, the genus uh, apostolic, not apostolicum, this would be myostaticum, which is another one. And then there's also the apostolicum. But we, we don't need to get into that. All right. This is, it's really a lovely confession. It's a great way to prepare um, to consider uh, what's happening next week. Is that literally, <laughs> actually, truly, God died for you. The one who made you the one who rede- is the one who redeemed you. And he did so by his suffering and death. Um, and so we call it a great mystery or a great wonder. Um, just as much a, a mystery and a wonder as, as God becoming flesh, in, incarnate of the Virgin Mary. Right, um, and we should. Ju- this is the key, for, I think, for Lutherans in particular. Um, our so our position is that we let these things stand. Right, we don't try to explain away what we can't under- understand, but we don't also seek to silence that which we can't understand. We simply embrace it. We confess it. Right, um, and as much as it's beyond our comprehension, it still um, is for our benefit. Right, which is why we confess it. All right, I saw a couple chats pop up. We enjoy the explanation. They are new words to me, trying to get it. Yeah, so if you have a book of Concord, which you should, uh, and they're fairly inexpensive, I think they're $30 or $40 um, for the big book, you should get one, and uh, you should read Article 8. Um, and I think it's presented in a very legible, readable way if you follow the argument along. Um, if you have the uh, reader's edition, it gives you plenty of historic notes to tell you about the characters that are being mentioned or the errors that are being uh, rejected, right? So it, it fills in the gaps for you as well um, of historic knowledge. And uh, even pastors need those because there's as many heresies as there are people. <laughs> so can't often remember uh, who did what and who said what. All right, we'll leave it at that. All right, catechism, table of duties, what hearers owe their pastors. We confess. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 13. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews 13, verse 17. On the Saturday, we pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. We pray that the Lord put an end to all schisms and causes of offense, that he bring into the way of truth all who have erred and are deceived, to beat down Satan under our feet, to send faithful laborers into his harvest, to accompany his word with his grace and spirit, to forgive our enemies, persecutors, and slanderers, and turn their hearts, to give and preserve for our use the kindly fruits of the earth. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. 
We give thanks today with Doug and Catherine, who celebrate their birthday, with John and Amanda, who rejoice in the gift of healing, for Tristan, Marcella, Kelsey, Timothy, Sandy, Linda, Ken, and Aaron, and Penny, who are all ill and in need of recovery, for Bev, David, Willis, and Janice, and Mickey, our homebound, for Camp Luisimo, our mission of the month, and Sheboygan County Hispanic Outreach. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Almighty God, by your great goodness, mercifully look upon your people, that we may be governed and preserved evermore in body and soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. Well, I'd love to sing the whole hymn, but we're going a little long, so we'll sing stanzas one and two of our hymn. Excellent. Good to have you all here with us for our congregation of prayer for today, Saturday, March 27th. I see you checking in there. Chris, Don, uh, Grace, Eileen, Gus, Karen, and Michael. I encourage you, uh, if you're in the area, make sure you stop by 11 to 1 at the school. 
for our brat fry fundraiser for the school. And uh, yeah, some uh, of the famous potato salad, of course. So that's, uh, yeah, that's just a little bit over an hour, hour and 20 minutes. So uh, if you can make it out, do that. That's going to be not a great day, rainy and whatnot. Oh, and you can get your picture taken with the Easter bunny, which turns out to be a Lutheran tradition. I learned that this morning. <laughs> learn every, learn something new every day. Yep, look it up, kids. The Easter bunny was a Lutheran, German Lutheran thing, of course, right? Just like the Christmas tree. All right, uh, Lord be with you all, and we'll see you again tomorrow at 9.30 for our divine service.